it was a really special thing. The people who had come to it definitely said that they felt it was a space that they could just be really free and be really themselves. It was extremely wholesome as well. Like the, the queer scene in general at the time was quite, you know, a lot of places would have like sex parties and things like that. Whereas we were very much, um, it was just the, the people who were, we were there. I mean, I would have totally been up for the sex parties, but like <laughs> the other people that were there, it was this very, it was very wholesome and it was very inclusive. Hello, I am Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories they created there, and the people that they used to know. This week, we are catching up with Chris Hubley, a musician, artist, and art historian who is also known by his drag alter ego, Crystal Mighty. We talk about a lot of things this episode. Language and how it evolves, strange, intense, platonic relationships, and DIY culture, which were all subjects that branched off of our original reason for meeting, which was Fag Club, an event night held initially in Cardiff, but for the majority of its run in Bristol, England. Fag Club was an inclusive DIY night for QUAGs, which stands for Queers of All Genders and Sexualities, that Chris put on with a group of friends after meeting them at Queeruption, which is an annual international queer core festival. Anyway, let's get to it. The last thing that I wanted to say is that there are some terms that we use in our conversation that you may not be familiar with. And if that's the case, then I have included some definitions within the show notes for the program. first one I went to was uh, Amsterdam in 2004 and that was a pretty amazing experience for me because I was I just finished my art foundation course at the time which was a, a year-long course after a level so I was 19 20 20 I would have been and I had come out as trans a few years before that and had just started taking testosterone and was in this very trans med uh, sort of trans culture that, that was around at the time. And, you know, there, there was some internet resources happening, but it was very limited and very, this kind of very specific way that you're supposed to be trans. You're supposed to, you know, start on hormones and then have surgery and then, you know, ideally be a very conforming heterosexual person post-transition. And um, is that what you mean by transmed? That that. Oh yeah, sorry. So trans transmed. Yeah. So transmedicalism is is the idea that to be trans, you have to follow a very specific specific medical pathway. Uh-huh. So if you don't want hormones and if you don't want surgery, then you're not trans, and you're um, you know, there's the term transtrender that people sometimes use. 
the idea that you're just doing it to be trendy or pretending or whatever. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty gross. And I, but it was all that was around at the time. It was at least it was all that was around for me. It was all that I could see. And mm-hmm. when I went to uh, Queeruption, it was the first time I'd ever encountered people doing their gender in different ways and people talking about um like gender fluidity like the term genderqueer was used a lot then the term but i don't remember people using the term non-binary but um so being there was kind of the idea that to be queer was kind of to be almost inherently non-binary because it was all about breaking down the binary gender uh, constructs that it was a lot of influence from the kind of academia of queer theory and and those sorts of things as well it was um yeah and you know I was meeting people who weren't planning on having any medical treatment or any medical transition and that had never occurred to me as an option it just wasn't a thing that was ever presented as something that you could do before then and do you remember then how you initially reacted to that were you like fascinated or were you a bit like because you'd been down this trans medical pathway were you like oh that's wrong um I think I just thought it was great immediately I was like oh my god I had had no idea this was a thing this is amazing um yeah I think I've I've been I've when I when I've sort of encountered new ideas I've always been very open-minded to them even if I'd not necessarily occurred to me before that that was a possible thing and I think you know it was things as well like people were talking about using terms like heteronormativity which I'd never heard before and um yeah and just it just really kind of sparked something in me and something that was quite exciting um I think as well because I've always been quite a I've, I've always been I've always enjoyed being quite flamboyant and doing things that are considered quite feminine you know like we had a quite a substantial dressing up box when I was a kid and I was I was very into that I had sort of like quite poofy strange dresses and things which you could and what was your favorite outfit um I remember a dress that was like um black with like a blue rose pattern all over it and it was kind of um sort of ruched around the top ruched say no more it must be (laughs) i'm not sure if that's quite the right word i'm not i'm not but it was sort of all like elasticated all around the top so it sort of snug in and then poofed out at the bottom and had like one sleeve and it was quite um (gasps) sort of swishy (laughs) sounds quite 80s was it velveteen probably it wasn't i don't think it was velveteen but um i've got no idea where these things came from they were just like in the house so (laughs) maybe they just kind of manifested in this dressing up box um sorry i've taken you off <laughs> it's all right <laughs> i've not thought about much about the dressing up box for a while so that's that's nice um so yeah like i'd i'd always felt a bit the kind of transmed ideas i i definitely felt quite hemmed in by them particularly mm. in terms of my the way i was expressing myself and the way that it was considered that I should be expressing myself like as a trans man. Um, and yeah, the idea that, and you know, I mean, it's a bit later, but the term transmasculine started being, I mean, obviously it's still used now, but it started being um, used a bit like as a synonym for AFAB trans people. So the idea that if you're 
if you're mm. assigned feminine at birth and you're trans, then you're automatically masculine. Or the reason that you're trans is because you're somehow drawn to the masculine, which has never really been my my thing, you know. Yeah. Well, even, I mean, even what you said before about the mm. assumption that you would then transition and become this kind of heterosexual serving member of society. Oh, I have no <laughs> idea why I just said that. Like, was that kind of the assumption that everyone that you were interacting with had i i think so i definitely felt like there was this this thing that part of being trans is wanting to be you know quote unquote normal and it's the it's wanting to it was wanting to disappear somehow um and you know the idea that i there was kind of a bit of the idea that if you did if you were if you enjoyed being trans and liked that you were trans then you kind of weren't really trans because to be trans was to want to be a cis person of the opposite sex basically and to just be in turmoil yeah yeah and to for the ultimate the ultimate kind of prize of transness was to be seen as a as a cis person oh. and yeah i mean it's it's really pretty cool that i've the the fact that a rejection of that has kind of become the norm within trans culture. Mm. And I think that that's quite, um, it's pretty incredible really and quite exciting that, um, that, cause it could have gone totally the other way. It could have been that, um, as trans people became more visible. I mean, I guess there is something in the em embracing trans visibility does kind of come along with embracing the sort of, you know, transness as a as a good in itself, and being trans as a as a positive experience, or you know, has that mm -hmm. it has the capability to be a positive experience, um, and the sort of celebration of the variety within trans people, I think, is a really important part of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, this is just a completely like segue into it to another um, sure topic. It's semi, semi topic. Um, so like I've been watching Soap recently, which is this sitcom from the seventies okay. and it was created by the woman who created the golden girls. So that was kind of like part uh, of the reason that I wanted to watch it, yeah. but also it had like one of the first gay, um, characters on primetime TV, mm. which, you know, which, you know, all these things were ticking boxes. And then on like the first episode or like the first number of episodes, the, the gay character decides that in order for him and his boyfriend to live like a normal, you know, air quote, normal life. Yeah he is going to have a sex change. And it was mm. just like, I mean, I know it, so it was from the seventies. I don't know if I've said that already. It's like, you know, from a very long time ago, but just yeah. watching it was just like, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> Who greenlit this, this, this plot? Like, this is just so oh, weird. God. Like that, yeah. that his whole thing was, oh yeah, I'm going to, that's going to happen. And then my life is going to be sorted and everything's going to be fine. I mean, um, that's very much uh, Blanchard's, you know, so a lot of people talk, well, a lot of TERFs talk recently about um, autogynophilia, um, which is the idea that of trans people transitioning in order to, because they, well, trans women specifically, transitioning because they're sexually attracted or turned on by the idea of themselves as a woman. 
for the other side, that's only for the trans women who are attracted to women. For the other people, uh, the trans women who are attracted to men, they're seen as homosexual transsexuals, air quotes. Um, the idea being that they're so into guys that they want to pretend to be women in order to get with straight men, which I guess doesn't quite, maybe it doesn't quite fit because if he was gay, they wouldn't need to become a woman to be attractive to them. But it's definitely got, I feel like they might have been reading some of that or that that might have been influencing that idea that that's why trans people exist. And, oh, it was an expert who said it. So that must be, it must be <laughs> accurate, you know. Oh, I think this was the days before consulting experts. I think it was just like, yeah. this will do, let's do this. <laughs> anyway, yeah. sorry, this isn't, this isn't about reviewing TV. Um, so so you, went, you, went, you went and you were introduced to new concepts. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, and because I'd been involved in DIY gig scenes before then, like my, my big sister has been very she was in she was going to gigs since she was like a teenager and a lot of her friends were running their own nights and doing djing and in a very sort of indie diy kind of way so mm-hmm. i was very very much exposed to that from a very young age so it was kind of although i feel like it was slightly different in the the kind of anarchist squat scene is a lot more expl- obviously a lot more explicitly political there was the idea of people just making stuff happen because they want it to happen rather than because they're trying to make money out of it or because they're, I don't know, trying to get kudos or whatever, um, Mm. was really, yeah, it was something that I was already very used to the idea of. And it was just kind of expanding that into talking about gender and sexuality and this idea that it was very much applying the theories of, anarchy of or anarchism i guess and the squat scene into conversations about gender and sexuality so breaking down sort of heteronormative ideas breaking down the structures of how we're supposed to how we're expected to be um and also i mean the gay scene that i'd been exposed to was extremely tame and very like oh we're going to all sort of wear the same outfits and like stand around listening to shit music and sort of be snidey to anyone who looks a bit weird, <laughs> which is not really, you know, it's, I basically was going cause I was like, this is how I'm going to meet other queer people. But I wasn't actually into it. I used to just have to get really drunk to, to deal with <laughs> how shit the nights were. Um, whereas, you know, I'd also, I was in a, a ska punk band around that time as well when I was sort of in my late teens so there was and there was like three ska punk bands in my school so we had our own kind of little little scene going on um so I'm going off on a tangent again um (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so yeah my point is I you know the idea of creating your own culture and creating your own ideas about how you can be and how you can live was very much it wasn't completely new to me but it was just being presented in this new way and it was like, oh, have you considered thinking about these other things from this perspective? So, so yeah, I mean, like I say, I'd already been on testosterone for a few months when I went to Corruption Amsterdam, but I kind of, I ended up making the decision not to have chest surgery for a while, um, partly because of the 
the effects of the testosterone was so much that I didn't really feel like I needed it. And I kind of wanted to let that settle in a bit. Mm-hmm. But also it was just like, oh, I don't have to have surgery straight away. I can kind of just be as I am and, you know, not my, not put myself through that at the moment. So so absolutely tell me if you don't want to discuss this because sure. um, I'm just, I'm going to like ask medical questions. Like when you like went on the testosterone, was it just mm. like, okay, we're going to book this in, we're going to book this in, we're going to book this in. Or was it like, do you want this? Like, was it just that, that that was the expectation that you would be doing this, 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 and this to transition? Um, I got my, t- I ended up getting my testosterone privately because I'd been on the NHS waiting list for two and a half years at that point. Um, and apparently that that actually closed down for a year and didn't tell me. <laughs> so <laughs> I went for one session, one private session um, where they just prescribed testosterone um, and I basically, I went with the intention to get testosterone. So we didn't even really talk about anything else um, mm-hmm. because that wasn't what I was, what I was going there for. And I, I ended up going to the, getting an NHS appointment about a year after that. And, and I was thinking, I was going there because I was thinking that I might still want chest surgery. Um, but I wasn't sure at that point. But yeah, it was just really bad. It was just really like they were talking to me as if I was stupid, it felt like. And just really, um, it was just really not a positive experience on any level. And I just, I didn't feel like I could be honest with them. So I just, I just stopped going to them. So what do you mean like stupid? Like that you hadn't thought things through or that you didn't know they were just like was involved? They were just talking to me like really slowly and really like as if I couldn't like comprehend what they were saying to me or as if they were expecting me to, I don't know, like struggle to just comprehend things that they were telling me. And I just didn't feel like they were, they talked to me respectfully at all. And do you think that's because of your age at the time or? It was, that was possibly part of it. I think it was possibly a combination of age and people within the mental health sector not necessarily being that good at talking to people who because you know it was although being trans isn't a mental health condition they were Mm -hmm. they were people who were trained as mental health practitioners so Uh, yeah I think that was part of it so they didn't necessarily have a specialism no I mean I don't I don't know but I mean the, the clinic ran like one day a month or something so these people were probably doing other stuff as well um, and then we're just like covering the the, the trans stuff, like as a yeah, side yeah. thing. But so then, so like you just kind of disengaged and just stopped going. Yeah, I think I think what happened is I'd I'd gone away for for maybe a month or something, and then I came back and had a letter saying that I'd missed an appointment, and so they were going to what's it called, like defer. <laughs> I was going to say defer is the opposite of refer um <laughs> discharge that's the word um discharge me and I was just like well I guess you know I don't really care so I just didn't it just didn't keep just going didn't but yeah. isn't that amazing that like a mental health <laughs> like the, the you miss one appointment and then they're like well, well yeah off you go like they couldn't the, yeah the, 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 it's not possible that there's millions of reasons behind no. this including no. potentially a mental health problem 
See ya. <laughs> I think in theory, if I'd have contacted them and said I I was away at the time, then they might have re, you know, got me back on again. But I just wasn't I wasn't bothered at that point. So so I didn't basically. <laughs> You're giving um, them the benefit of the doubt and I'm just lagging <laughs> them off. Sorry. <laughs> it is just, yeah, it is just fascinating though, isn't it? That these um these systems that are like, I mean, I'm sure it's automated and it was just like a, like a letter that just went out like mm. without any humans involved, but just like yeah. not, think, not thinking about what the impact of that is on the, yeah. the person. And, and like, you know, if it was being sent to someone with a mental health condition, they might just, they might have had a really good reason to have missed it and not felt able to contact them again because of, mm. you know, mm. yeah, but yeah. Anyway, going. I'll go back to going back to what we were talking about before. I've gone on a bit of a, a tangent with that one. So when I went to Queer Option Amsterdam, it was the summer before I was going to university in Cardiff. And while I was at Amsterdam, I met a couple of people who lived in Cardiff and were very into all this stuff. So it was great. It was like I just learned about all this amazing cool stuff and I just met people who lived in the city I was about to move to who were also into this stuff and you know and we became like them and other people that were friends with we kind of became like this little gang in Cardiff um known as the fags because we did the night called fag club and yeah <laughs> which actually was an acronym which stood for friends are great so it was the friends are great. <laughs> Wait, okay, but hang on. Fag came first, didn't it? And then um, you just like, I, made this acronym to make it fit. I wasn't there when the conversation was had, so I can neither confirm nor deny any of that. Um, I think, you know, we were we were very into acronyms. I mean, who isn't really? Yeah, like whenever we wrote it, we'd always write it in capitals. And I don't know if people thought we were just shouting it, but it's like, no, it's because it's an acronym. But I mean, we would also like make up all other things that it stood for and just have fun, like thinking about all the all the stuff that FAG could stand for. But the the sort of overriding one was the Friends Are Great Club. Oh, wait, so um, what were the alternatives? Oh, I can't even remember now. French... Anglify. Oh, I'm not <laughs> we just it's just random just random words like frogs aren't giraffes um <laughs> frogs are green that's factually correct yes yes that's true um i mean it was Fries just like are good <laughs> <laughs> yep there you go um follow a um gauntlet and there you go um, follow, a fo- follow a grapefruit that's better Oh, a grapefruit. <laughs> it was just a fun game to play when we were drunk, basically. <laughs> so yeah, we we started putting on putting on shows when I was in. Uh, it was when I was while I was at university, which would have been from two thousand and five to like two thousand seven or eight. Um, we started out putting on putting on shows in Cardiff which so we we would have them in these like tiny upstairs pub rooms and hardly anyone would come to them because I I don't know who ever been to Cardiff but it's a very small Mm. city there's Mm. not a lot going on it's really beautiful um you know I highly recommend visiting there's some great secondhand bookshops a really fantastic park like a really fantastic park I think it's one of the best parks I've ever been to so so it has that going for it but yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> but in terms of like nightlife and and things like that, there's I mean there were a few other people that were doing stuff, but it was very you, you know people just weren't really into it. So mm. I think this was the thing we we put on some fantastic stuff and people we just weren't coming to it but we didn't really care because we weren't doing it to like try and be seen to be you know we weren't like trying to make money or trying to as long as we could cover our costs we were kind of happy and we you know we all we would have bands who were kind of traveling and we'd like put them up and we'd always you know give them really nice food and all this stuff and just kind of generally you know we had this really great community within the, the group of us and we kind of really wanted to like wel- welcome other people into that community and mm. the bands that were touring, but also people who were coming to the night. So we, we became this very kind of tight knit group, which is, you know, part of where the friends are great comes from. Cause you know, I think fat club was like very much came from our relationship as a group. Um, you know, it's kind of the first time and kind of the only time I've really felt like part of a gang in that way. Like mm. I really was part of this thing. And, you know, we were like a family in a lot of ways. Like we lived together. We spent all our time together. We organized shows together. And it was very, I mean, it was, it was great. I mean, you know, looking back now, there were things about it that were quite like toxic <laughs> in some <laughs> ways, just in that, you know, it's, it's very easy to kind of lose yourself when you're in that kind of group. And I think that I kind of reached a point i mean i mean this is sort of skipping forwards now but um the you know we we the the nights basically stopped because the main reason was because we kind of drifted apart as friends and i mean i think also we had got quite burnt out with it all but for me it finishing was kind of good to be able to like take a step back and be like okay who am i apart from this very close-knit group um, so yeah, now it's, you know, sort of trying to find the balance between finding community versus staying true to, to who I am. It is a weird thing, isn't it? Like when mm. you, I mean, and, and I'm sorry if I'm speaking on your behalf when I say this, right. but when you grow up as a queer kid and don't mm. have that community necessarily, um, and don't feel like you fit in necessarily, it's so intoxicating to yeah suddenly have a group of people that may accept you for who you are and just to be all in and and to be all in so quickly as well um yeah can be can be quite dangerous yeah totally yeah and as on top of that I ended up moving around schools when I was younger so I kind of um did although I sort of kept friends with people like I didn't feel like I was in part of the gang um mm. so i think that kind of added to that as well and i was desperate to be part of a gang <laughs> i was so desperate yeah yeah i think i mean i think a lot of us are and i think that having you know i mean the other thing as well is that i've not really had much in the way of romantic relationships in my life and these kind of like that kind of intense friendship sort of took the role of that in some ways Mm-hmm. um like it kind of like we really were like a domestic unit in a lot of ways well, how many how many of them how many of how many of you were there? How many of them? <laughs> so i would say there was about five people in the the kind of i guess the inner the inner, inner circle, circle. <laughs> <laughs> um 
I mean, when we were when we were living in Cardiff, we were in a I think a five person house, and we well we all moved up to, over to Bristol. This is this is the next stage in the in the story of Fat Club. Uh. Um, so when I finished uni, I mean, there's kind of a lot of reasons why we ended up moving to Bristol. Um, part of it is that it's I mean it's it's pretty close. It's like just across the the bridge, really, mm-hmm. and we knew a lot of people here and it's it's quite a, i mean even now it's quite a cool city i kind of like me and all my friends really wish the guardian would stop writing articles about how cool bristol is <laughs> <laughs> because it just makes it really hard for people who already live here and want to like find somewhere to live that isn't ridiculously expensive um so when we got here like well a few of i think I'm trying to think three of us moved up originally and then a couple of others sort of joined us and then we started putting on fag club in a friend of ours ran a uh like an arts warehouse it was basically basically a warehouse space that had studios around the side and a big space in the middle and it was just off uh stokes croft which is the extra cool bit you know bristol is like this cool city (laughs) stokes croft is like the extra cool bit it's where like there's all these banksies and you know, it's kind of had a lot of regeneration and gentrification over the last few years. So yeah, there was this uh, this warehouse there, and so we started putting them on there. And I think part we it kind of became like very popular for a while. And I think part of the reason is because it wasn't actually legal to put nights on there. So on all our publicity, it would say secret warehouse location. So, <laughs> so I think, a bit, I mean, they were like, they were good nights, but I also think a bit of it was the people were like, Ooh, it's like, it's, ooh, it's like a mystery. It's this kind of cool, like secret warehouse. Um, but but so what yeah. would happen then? So like you'd get the flyer and you knew it was at a secret warehouse, but then how would you find out where to actually so go? There'd be a phone number or and an email address. So basically people would call us or email us and find out where it was, which, you know, is for security is not actually that good. But it, I mean, we never got into trouble for it. Um, I think part of the thing was we... So you didn't email them back and say like, are you a police officer? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we didn't ask them to um, answer the the police questions, whatever, whatever they are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did. I think the first few we attempt, we sort of tried having a bar of sorts, but then we were like, well, no, because if we do get caught, then selling booze is like what's really gonna, you know, cause problems. So we ended up having a tea bar, um, which was pretty <laughs> cool. So people could like listen to queer punk music whilst drinking a cup of herbal tea, which is kind of the dream. How extensive <laughs> was how extensive was this? It was pretty extensive. I think that was when a friend of a friend of ours was working at a, a whole food shop. So they managed to get like a good stash of pucker teas. So we had a, a decent range of them. Oh, they're fancy yeah. stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, one of the the big focuses of what we wanted to do with Fag Club is, I mean, obviously a major part of it is building community and creating a space for uh, women and queer people to present there to you know to have a, a be able to showcase what they do and also a safe space for people to be able to gather and you know connect and all that um we also really wanted to not have a very strict uh barriers about the kind of things that we were showing so we were you know we'd have like i say punk bands 
Um, but also, I mean, it was kind of the Electroclash era. So there was a lot of that sort of stuff around. Mm. We also had, you know, things like performance arts. We had poetry. Um, I think we might have had some sort of theatre type thing, sort of like short, small scale. I have a kind of vague memory of that being a thing, at some of them. Um, I think one of the things we really prided ourselves on was having a night where you'd see all this really like diverse stuff that you wouldn't think to put together but it all kind of worked so rather than it being okay we've got a punk night so we need to think of punk bands or like we've got a an arty electro night so we need all arty electro bands it was mm-hmm. it was very much about just throwing stuff together and making it work and people kind of seeing stuff that they wouldn't necessarily see otherwise which yeah is definitely a pretty a pretty exciting thing and i think that's something that um going back to we were were talking about drag before like it's one of the things i find really exciting about drag that it's like you can see things that you might not see otherwise or you know people are doing the more creative and weird stuff Mm. i want to ask more questions about the name yeah so we don't we don't have to come up with new acronyms (laughs) okay um did the name put people off um because i mean and and the reason i ask this is like even now mm. there are people who really recoil at the use of that word um and people saying fag mm. um even though there's been quite a lot of um movement and quite a lot of change in in yeah in people's views but at that time it must have been very emotive for people to hear the word fag to describe a club yeah i mean i think i do remember seeing a couple of people on various forums saying that they didn't like that it was called fag club um in terms of the people who are kind of target demographic they were people who were very involved in the queer scene so the idea of reclaiming slurs was very much something that they mm-hmm. were up for um so in that respect there there were some criticisms but it was never it was never a big deal it was never like a thing you know we didn't have people trying to shut us down or anything like that um, yeah but i think i think as well we were quite playful with it like we called the house we lived in we we referred to as faggy towers and and whenever we we like wrote a blog post we'd sign it off as faggy towers (laughs) and i think as well you know there's a long history of 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 reclaiming things so i think people got that it was it was part of that yeah yeah i I don't know and maybe it's like people that i am exposed to more yeah because i you know i love calling myself a fag i'm like quite proud Mm. to to use that word proud's not the right word but yeah um but then there are some people who if if i not that not that i'm like just casually dropping it into every conversation obviously context is important but who i will say in front of who will just not be comfortable with it and feel really like you know recoil almost yeah if if i say it and i guess i'm still just navigating that yeah, totally. I think it's interesting as well that how how things have I think it shows how things have changed because back then when the internet and social media was less ubiquitous, it was a lot easier to have very specific pockets of culture that kind of weren't really exposed to each other. So, you know, it's like I remember the first time I watched Drag Race, I was really confused when they started talking about what's the tea. 
Because the only thing, the only time I'd ever heard anyone mention tea in a queer context was testosterone. <laughs> so I was like, why are these drag queens asking about testosterone? <laughs> <laughs> but, but surely you heard tea mentioned a lot when you were running your nights. No. I mean, well, <laughs> the, the other kind of tea, yes. The, the third kind of tea. But yeah, I think, I mean, that's, it's interesting to see how there's this idea that there's a kind of monolith of queer culture. And I think it's going back to talking about Drag Race before, people think that that is queer culture, you know. But I'd never I'd never heard any of that until I watched Drag Race and I'd been part of queer scenes mm. for like over a decade at that point. It's something I found really interesting looking at the, the language around trans people and how there's some people who will insist that certain words are the right words to say and then other people who will insist that those words are slurs and that you should never use them. And it's because they've developed differently in different pockets of community that didn't really have any interaction between them. And seeing, I mean, I think there is still an aspect to that. And I think things aren't necessarily totally globalized, but there's definitely much more of a connection between the different groups and much more of an idea that there's a kind of, or at least it's it's more possible for there to be a kind of queer monoculture, which is good in the sense of having connecting to more people and having an understanding outside of your own experience and the people that are around you but I think that it can also be quite a raising of a lot of things and and people things like talking about the way that they talk on drag race specifically people forget that that is specifically ballroom culture which yeah. is black working class American people whereas and so they think that it's it's a universal queer thing rather than a very very specific to a very specific subculture. I, I yeah, I guess that you know the most important thing is to be respectful of of other people's experiences and making sure that you're not inadvertently offending. Mm. And I guess that yeah, that's where I'm coming from in terms of language. In that you know I uh try to be playful with language i have fun with language i mm. love language but what i don't want to be doing is alienating or upsetting anyone through using language yeah and i think it, it can be very very hard when we're a part of a group who have been marginalized and have been you know language has been mm. used against us and people use language to like dog whistles to imply things that without necessarily saying it to us outright mm. and so being able to think of that you know being able to use that and have people be on the same page with and understand the way that you're using it without finding it you know without it causing them pain and without them thinking it's related to and there's also the fact that people like I remember the whole conversation about the word tranny which I don't use anymore um, but there was a time when it was just a word that people used. And then, mm. and I think, I think specifically, you know, as a, as an AFAB trans person, um, I mean, it is a, it is also a term that, you know, I know AFAB trans people who have had it used as a slur to them, but generally it's more used towards AMAB trans people and trans women. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was a time when it was just a word that I used because it kind of sounds fun and a bit less serious especially when the word transsexual was the word like when I was first out the word transgender I mean it existed but I'd never heard it before mm -hmm. and so the word was transsexual which is kind of 
not very nice to say to people because it instantly makes them think about sexuality and makes it sound like it's mm. a fetish and makes it sound like it's about being gay or, or you know, it's about how you want to have sex, which, you know, obviously it's not. And, and I think, you know, that's on a slight tangent. That's a big part of why transgender has kind of overtaken transsexual as, you know, it used to be that both the words were kind of used in tandem, but now while there are people who, who, who specifically identify as transsexual, it's kind of been superseded by transgender Mm. Um, I can't remember what my original track was now. <laughs> I was oh, talking yeah. about, oh yeah, the fact that the fact that the word that I could use to describe myself, transsexual, was such an unpleasant word that I didn't really want to say. Having a word that sounded fun and sounded kind of playful was quite nice. But mm. then when I sort of spoke to more people and read more things, and it was like this is actually a very you know this this word using this word hurts me and is associated with trauma and pain i was like okay fair enough i won't use it anymore um i did read recently that in some places they used to use the word transy which i quite like as a as a term <laughs> transy transy like pansy but transy oh i see okay <laughs> it could be transy as well like a, a gen z trans person <laughs> um, but but i think the idea is it's like it's like pansy but transy so are you gonna are you gonna make that a thing well i've got it in my twitter bio um i've, <laughs> I've got that I, I was i think i was originally gonna put professional transy but then i was like well i don't get paid for it so i'll put amateur transy <laughs> um, and also like the word I mean, amateur comes from the word for love as well which is nice because oh. it's um, it's like a more um oh. amateur Oh, I'd never thought of so, that. So, yeah, it's someone who does something for love. Um, <laughs> and so, okay, but like, so, so just go with me on the next thing I'm going to talk sure. about. We okay. might not end up anywhere, but okay. like, it's just this thought that's starting to to spring up. So, if you were going to say, okay, I belong to the culture that uses transy as a slanderous word, um, uh, to me, and I'm going to reclaim that word. How many people do you need, like, to also reclaim that word for it to become reclaimed rather than it just being you banging your drum? <laughs> um, I think if someone's part of a group that's that's being marginalised or oppressed, they kind of don't really need anyone else. Like, I know people who have various health conditions that are pretty rare and they reclaim words that are used around those and I mean, I guess they might be in their own communities using them, but I've not encountered other people and they might not even really know other people who have who who have the similar conditions. So, yeah, I think I think if a word's being used against you, then you totally have the right to use it for yourself. Um, I mean, obviously, re being respectful of other people, I think that's definitely a balance that kind of needs to be had. It's a diff mm. the difference between using a word for yourself versus using a word for people in general. I think it's something that's interesting with the word queer because some people use queer to mean basically LGBT um, and it's like an or, you know, LGBT plus and it's like a, yeah, a easy term. way of doing that. Yeah. Um, but then other people and, you know, it's, it's kind of the way it was used in the communities that I was part of. It's very much, it's 
you know, it's very like much that related. Punk DIY attitude. Yeah, well, it's you know, it's it's about deconstructing binary ideas, and it's about so the we, you know we're in a sort of queer context. There isn't really talking about whether someone is gay or straight, or whether someone's a man or a woman. Isn't it's not that simple, and it's it's not something that you can that really makes sense within that context because it's like well what do those what do these categories mean and how are they constructed and in what ways are they deconstructed and how can we deconstruct them so so yeah it's 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 been interesting to see to see those changes and i think that i mean that's the thing as well sometimes queer is is literally just like gay punk people uh and yeah but then so do you feel offended then by the people using it in the um context of an umbrella term for the lgbtqia plus community offended probably too strong a word sorry yeah i wouldn't say i feel offended by it i think it can be unhelpful because it it includes people who don't necessarily see themselves with that term either because they do feel offended by it or, you know, I know a lot of... Or they voted conservative. <laughs> Maybe. Well, I mean, it's like I, I know a lot of binary identified trans people who are who are straight, who wouldn't, who are, you know, they're, they're not offended by people calling them queer, but they're just like, well, I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself queer. That's not, that yeah. doesn't represent who I am. Um, but they would say that they were LGBT. Mm. Yeah, no because... Would say that, would they? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's one of the things with with queerness as well. It was kind of, we, we kind of used it as almost like a non-label. It was a way to, to, to say that we're not limiting ourselves to these labels and we don't see these labels as important or as, um, mm. you know, or rather we see them as something that is created by an oppressive system Um you know, sort of capitalism and patriarchy have sort of created these identities and these labels. So, yeah, I again, I can't remember what my <laughs> where I was going with that, but and, um, and queer is a rejection of that. Yeah, so queer is like it's a way to um, to say I'm I'm actively working to deconstruct these patriarchal heteronormative structures. Um, like I say, it was very influenced by the academic world. So that's why I think there ends up being a lot of this very academic language in it. Um, which for me, when I when I went on to do my my master's my master's degree, I, I was like, oh, I know all these words because I <laughs> talked about stuff using them in queer squats like 10 years ago. <laughs> I've already got my head around this. <laughs> yeah, I think I think yeah. Sometimes when I'm having these conversations, I'm like, okay, hang on, wait, what, 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 what did that person just say? What? Yeah, <laughs> like having yeah. to work it out. That makes me think about how. I mean, one of the big issues with that that queer scene I was talking about is it was very, it was very much a bubble. Like there were all these queer uh, radical queer events going around all around, going on all around Europe and all around the world, but people and people would travel to them and go to all these exciting things and talk to people but it was extremely insular and extremely you know there were people involved in it who were very involved in other political actions and trying to bring them together like there was a lot of no borders work like about um, mm -hmm. immigration and asylum seekers and things like that but um yeah my experience of 
being in that queer world is that it was very it was very much a bubble and um trying to break out of that can be a bit difficult but yeah I mean again I think it's the it's one of the challenges of community sometimes it's like how do you build community without it becoming a bubble or a clique you know Mm -hmm. yeah and without it becoming uh, yeah and us and them yeah Mm. that's what a clique is isn't it yeah that's the thing that can be so um alluring and exciting about those communities is that the you know oh here's some people who understand me or who uh, i don't need to adjust my behavior too much to Mm. fit in and then suddenly the the outside world becomes too difficult to interact with and so you don't yeah i mean not doing the outside world any favors no no i mean i definitely for me having that bubble for the time that i did was very good for me and I mean, I do still live in a bit of a bubble. Like I live with trans people and and most of my friends are queer or trans. But yeah, I think that it's, to be honest, there's been times when I've been trying to, I was like, okay, I'm going to like do this thing. So I won't be in my bubble anymore. Like I got a, when I got my studio in like, I think it was 2011, I got like a small studio space in this kind of big um, arts uh thing uh and I was like yes I'm gonna go here and I'll not be in my queer bubble anymore and like all the people I met there were queers <laughs> but I mean because they were artists so of course they were um, I mean not all, not all artists world. are queer but, yeah <laughs> um so I just seemed to to attract those people towards me as well um but yeah I mean I I, <laughs> I kind of think there's there's no shame of being in a bubble in a way because you know we've got to do what what we can do you know and I think that um it can be it was definitely a really good thing for me for a time at least it really helped me feel part of something and feel connected to the people around me and feel that you know who I was was okay and I've you know I think I've although there was a lot of issues with it in the end especially like I definitely feel like I I got a lot from that. Um, mm. Yeah. And and sorry if I've come across as though I'm like, you should never have been there. <laughs> um, okay, so we've gone all around the houses. Yeah. Like, so how did, how did Fag Club end? Um, I mean, it, like I say, it kind of, it kind of petered out a bit. It basically, all of us were just quite busy. And because I'd been, it's something we've not really talked about, but I was also playing music at the time as well i i was doing like synth, this kind of weird manic synth pop stuff where i kind of dress up in weird outfits and sing along to a backing track off my ipod it was all very silly but quite fun but i'd reached a point where i didn't really want to do that anymore and i was also i think because i i wanted to start putting my energies more into visual art than music so i was not feeling so enthusiastic about doing the shows and also one of the other issues was the 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 warehouse that we'd been using which is a brilliant space it's you know having having somewhere that we had complete control over was just really fantastic like we didn't have to you know something as simple as like we could leave the equipment there until the next day so we didn't have to sort everything out on the night and also 
we didn't have to deal with, you know, we, we'd sometimes have issues with the managers of places being shitty to us or whatever, or just like, I don't know, being annoying. So we didn't know we could just like do whatever we wanted in the space. And our friend who ran it ended up giving it up because they couldn't afford to keep it going. So we kind of tried having it in different venues and it just never quite worked. And yeah, and then, you know, people ended up, we had the, the house that we were all in together. People ended up moving out of it. And that kind of, it was really, I think it was really held together by our friendship, basically, and by our um, our kind of group sort of way of working. And once that started to come apart a bit, it, it the whole thing kind of did as well. Mm. Um, it's how it was from, from, from my perspective anyway. So, yeah, I think we were just a bit, a bit burnt out, a bit kind of um, all just wanting to do different things. Um, yeah, there was no kind of huge, big celebratory send-off or anything, which is maybe a shame, but I think by the time it had sort of got to the point where we decided it was finished, like none of us were really in the mood <laughs> to do it, <laughs> basically. Aww. Yeah. But like there's there's loads of other exciting stuff going on, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever go to Fag Club in either Cardiff or in Bristol? Well, if you did, I would love to hear from you. Tell me your stories and share any photos that you might have from those times through social media. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram with the username KAndersonMusic. And whilst you're at it, go and give Chris some love on Twitter. His profile handle is Mr. Crystal Mighty. Lost Spaces is not only a podcast, but a concept record as well. I have been writing songs about queer venues and the people who used to live their lives there, and will be releasing songs over the coming year. You can hear the first single, which is called Wellgrim Boys, and is playing underneath my talking right now on all good streaming platforms. If you liked this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review on Apple Podcasts, or just told people who you think might be interested in giving it a little listen to. I am Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. <laughs>